A special thanks uh, to Curtis Cottrell and our missions team for working on that uh, Go Guide. It's an incredible production to put something like that uh, together because we're reaching out all across the globe and some of those projects involve not only places where you can give but places where you can actually go. So two not to forget about is if you're interested in going to Guatemala, uh, and visiting and meeting on the ground, the work that we do there, then talk to Curtis and the team because that team is coming together very quickly and getting ready for March break departure. And then if you are interested in coming uh, to Tanzania in the summer, then there's a meeting about that this Tuesday night at our place. So I just mentioned those two opportunities for you that you can get some additional traction in the gift guide uh, if you want to get on the ground and see what, what we're up to. Well, uh, it is the first Sunday of Advent, uh, which is a Sunday where we focus on hope, which means that we're getting close to Christmas. And I don't know about you, but as we turn the corner into the month of December, it always gets me thinking about expectations uh, and hope. And expectations, I don't know how you experience them, but my expectations, they drive so much Uh, of my life, so many different areas of my life. For example, when I was a kid, I have a vivid memory of certain presents, of expecting certain presents to be under the tree on Christmas morning. And sometimes that expectation almost killed me. So I don't know if you let this go in your house or not, but uh, growing up, I would get my parents would wrap them and put them under the tree early. So I would get right under there, pick the present up, and shake it to see if it actually met my expectation. Kind of feel it, crinkle it a little bit, and see, you know, oh, this is a pair of socks. I'll open that last on the 25th. Uh, or get right in there and figure it out. Now, this got so bad that in our house, growing up, my parents decided to play with my expectations a little bit one year. And I can remember my expectation for that year was a digital watch. It was a Casio digital watch. It had a calculator on it. It was really cool at the time. It was very cool. So I thought this was going to be great. And I had every hope and expectation. It wasn't too expensive. Like this was, this was going to happen. So I poked my head under the tree and I started shaking presents and shaking presents. And I knew the size that the watch came in of the box. So I shook all the boxes and there was one that had a predictable weight. And I shook it and I shook it and oh, rats, Lego, threw it under the tree again. Well, that's okay. I mean, Lego's great. It's just not what I was expecting would be under the tree. Well, Christmas morning rolled around. I waited till then to open the present because I thought I knew it was, knew what it was. So I was uncharacteristically patient. And then it turned out my turn. I opened my presents and sure enough, a couple pieces of Lego dribbled out and then a watch dribbled out of the box too. My parents, knowing that I had this sort of capacity to try and want to get under there and figure stuff out, they had actually put Lego into the watch box so it would throw me off the scent. And they pulled a fast one on me. So what I had expected to be Lego turned out to be very exciting, turned out to be my Casio watch. Now, that's a positive example of expectations being met, but the reality is that much of our lives are lived in that gap between what we expect is going to happen and what actually ends up happening. We expect our family members will live to a ripe old age and they die seemingly before their time. 
We expect that we'll scrape and we'll save and sacrifice and we'll buy the perfect house and we'll get it and it costs more than we ever expected and ends up being more work than we ever thought. We expect that maybe by this time in our lives we would have paid off all of those nasty student loans or last year's impulsive Christmas card credit purchases. We expect that maybe by this time in our spiritual life we would be free from that nagging sin that keeps tripping us up and dogs us month after month after month. We expect that maybe this year when we started our Momentum Journaling Project 345 reading it would be a brand new person and this would be the year to finish strong and it hasn't happened yet. To a certain extent, every single one of us lives in some areas of our lives in that place of gap between our expectations and reality. And it can be disappointing to us. And it can be even worse. It can be maddening and frustrating. And the challenge is that we carry that same template oftentimes into our spiritual life. And we have expectations of God. How life with God will work out. Who God is, how he's operating in the world, and how he's going to interact in our lives. And when our expectations are not met, we get stuck. And the challenge for some of us becomes, who do we turn to? How do we process those expectations? I mean, if you don't get what you expect with your investments or your stocks, you talk with your financial advisor. If God meets your, doesn't meet your expectations, who do you write your complaint letter to? Well, this morning we're wrapping up our series in the book of Jonah from the Old Testament. It's a series that we've called Nudge. And the reason we've used the title Nudge to describe this series is because of the way in which God works and pushes us in the character and in the book of Jonah to think about God's work in places and people and in ways that we might not expect. You might remember from the beginning of the story of Jonah that Jonah is a reluctant messenger. He does not expect that he will receive a call from God to go to Nineveh because this is the capital city of the worst enemies of his people. And he's to call and tell them to repent. And instead of saying yes or maybe a polite no, Jonah rises and he flees from the presence of God, the text tells us, and he runs down to the port and he boards a ship heading to Tarshish in hopes of escaping God. But the story goes in chapter 1, there's a mighty storm, a tempest on the sea that threatens to break up the ship. And so the sailors and the captain panic and they decide that they need to figure out who's responsible for this and it must be Jonah's fault. So the sailors try and hope against hope to outrow the storm. But in the end, Jonah manages to convince them somehow that it's better off that they just throw him into the sea and that he die and that that will save them. And so as they hurl him into the raging sea, instantly the storm ceases from its raging. It's all in one short chapter, chapter one, with thanks to Sarah Ann for sharing her art uh, with us. In chapter two, we saw that Jonah prays, and Jonah's prayer in the belly of this big fish is also maybe not what we expect. And we learned how not to pray, and it's not a great idea just to pray when we get to the end of our rope. 
that we might have some conversations with God before that. Then last weekend in chapter 3, Pastor Keith picked up the narrative where God again says to Jonah, gives him a second chance, Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. And so Jonah got up and he went. And we learned that the most unusual thing happened, and perhaps the most unlikely thing happened. The people from the least to the greatest, heard the message of God's impending judgment on their city, and they repented. Not just with words of confession, but in their hearts and in their actions, they repented. Actions that spoke volumes about their hearts. In chapter 3, verse 10, it says, When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and he did not carry out the destruction that he had threatened. So after verse 10, you might make the assumption that this would be the time in the book for a massive celebration. The expectant judgment has been averted. The prophet has been successful beyond his wildest dreams. 120,000 people plus have repented. I mean, this is incredible stuff. But we pick up the story in Chapter 4, verse 1. Listen as I read the text. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah. And he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now. Lord, I would rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Then the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city. He made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. It eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. And the next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot... God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. And the sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and he wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Oh yes, said Jonah, even angry enough to die. And then the Lord said, You feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly. It died quickly. Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all of the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry or shouldn't I feel compassion for such a great city? It would be a normal expectation after 
one of the most successful numerical revivals recorded in the Bible that the initiating party might be happy about it. But Jonah seems sullen and cantankerous and argumentative with God. I love this guy because in his prayers, he's just very honest with God. He's very raw and unkind of scripted. He just lets God know how he thinks. He whines, he pouts, he throws temper tantrums like a little kid. It's, it's so raw, it's almost comical. Except for the fact that in his anger and frustration with God not meeting Jonah's expectations, he misses the big picture of who God is and what he's up to. Because Jonah's expectations of the way that God works loom larger in his mind than God's character. And so for Jonah, it becomes an unmitigated catastrophe that the Ninevites have somehow managed to repent and avoid disaster. In Jonah's thinking, they deserved very strict and harsh judgment from God and justice. After all, they had been brutal and merciless military oppressors of his people and many other countries in the world. And now, after all of the sorrow and hardship that they had caused, after all of the ways in which they had absolutely, they're one of the most brutal military regimes in the ancient world, after all of these things, now they're going to repent and God is going to show them mercy? It just didn't make any sense to Jonah. And you see here a little bit of his hard edge as a person and as a prophet. It comes up in other places in the book. In chapter 1, verse 12, if you really think about it, the logic of Jonah's asking to be thrown into the sea, it kind of goes like this. I would rather die because Jonah didn't know that God was going to provide the big fish to the sailors. He's out in the middle of nowhere in the ocean. There's no, he's not being put in a lifeboat and saying someone will come back for him. Jonah says, no, just toss me into the sea, the sailors. He has no expectation that he'll live whatsoever. He thinks it's game over. So he would rather, if you think about it, he would rather die in the middle of the Mediterranean than admit that he was wrong and he was responsible for the calamity and repent and ask God to visit mercy on him and on the sailors and calm the sea. He would rather die than admit that. And now here in chapter 4, he is so angry, he burns so deeply with anger that he says again to God, just kill me now. I would rather be dead then have to face the reality that I just saved the lives of 120,000 people that are my people's worst enemies. If I go home and tell them this, this will not go well for me, so I would rather just die right here, right now. Just kill me, God. Jonah is so overtaken by his expectations of how God will work that there is no room in his life and his thinking for the way in which God wants to shape his heart. His attitude stands in such 
stark contrast with the character of God as it's revealed to us in this chapter. In fact, seven times in the Old Testament, this exact framework is repeated, that God is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. Seven times. Jonah knows these texts, but he chooses not to embrace them. There's an old hymn by a Catholic writer and poem, Frederick William Faber, that's entitled, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. Listen to a few excerpts from some of the stanzas of this hymn. There's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice which is more than liberty. But we make his love too narrow by false limits of our own. And we magnify his strictness with a zeal he will not own. For the love of God is broader than the measure of our mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love, which is the perspective that Jonah is missing. He's missing the wideness. He's forgotten the wideness of God's mercy. In one of the other minor prophets in the book of Micah, in verse 18 of chapter 7, it reads, God, speaking of God, it says, you will not stay angry forever, but you delight in showing mercy. In his indignation over sin, Jonah misses the depth and the width and the extent of God's amazing and compassionate grace. And the book is set up in such a way that we're to pick up the irony of this. Because Jonah is a religious insider. If anybody should know about the depth of God's mercy and grace, it would be an Israelite prophet. But he doesn't recognize or give assent to it. It's interesting that the other people in the text, the outsiders in the text, hope against hope and pray repeatedly that God is actually just and merciful. The sailors in chapter 1, verse 6, pray this. They say, who knows? Maybe God will pay attention to us and spare our lives. In chapter 3, verse 9, the king of Nineveh says, who knows? Perhaps even God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. Do you know who knows? Jonah knows. Jonah knows this because he tells God in his prayer in chapter 4, verse 2. God, I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Jonah knows what those on the outside can only guess and hope and pray for. And yet, the irony is that he guards this knowledge of God's heart and his compassion and does not share it with those around him. 
And he's upset when God chooses to pour out his mercy on those who don't deserve it. And as I think about it, that's where I see some of my own heart. And maybe you see some of your own heart in Jonah as well. Sometimes I find myself being guilty of a thought process where God ought to limit his grace to me and those who are like me, who are really deserving of it. I want God's abundant grace that comes to me, and then when it comes to me, it can stop flowing after that. The wonderful but sobering reality that religious people often have a hard time coming to terms with is that God's unfailing love doesn't stop at my doorstep. The river keeps on flowing. Not only because of its width and its wideness, but also because of its depth and the depth of God's compassion. The Scripture teaches over and over again is so unsearchable that it sometimes confuses us. I'm reminded of God's conversation with Moses in Exodus chapter 33 where God comes to Moses and says, Listen, Moses, on the question of how and to whom I show mercy, let's get one thing straight. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy on, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Exodus 39, verse 19. If it was up to me, I would set the limits in a fairly fairly narrow constraint. And it would be about people who feel like or look like on the outside or demonstrate in some way that they deserve somehow God's mercy and grace. Which is maybe what Jonah's wrestling with here. Because the Ninevites, they just don't seem like after all that they've stacked up historically in their sins that they would deserve to receive God's grace and repentance. And this leads him outside the city. And he sits down, and he's going to wait out the 40 days. And I don't know what he's thinking. Maybe he's thinking God will change his mind. Maybe God is compassionate in the short term, but if God just scratches his brain a little and goes back into the files, he will remember how bad these Ninevites are. And then before 40 days is up, yeah, he'll really give it to them. Maybe he's thinking that the Ninevites are going to repent in the short term. Maybe then they'll get back to their old ways pretty quick. And then God will change his mind and rain down destruction on the formerly wicked, but now repent and then in wicked again city. But I love the way that God comes to Jonah in the conversation. God uses the school of very, very ordinary things to teach Jonah in this book and to reshape his faith. Things of, of every life, a storm, a fish, a vine, a worm, the wind, the sun. I'm grateful in my thinking here to James Bruckner, who's the author of the NIV application commentary. He reminds us that God not only delivered the Ninevites, but God delivered Jonah from his own calamity. God delivers Jonah from the storm, and then God delivers the Ninevites by preventing from their impending calamity. Then God again delivers Jonah from the sun by providing this vine for shade. But God, to test what's in Jonah's heart, 
sends the worm to eat the shade plant so that it dies. And real quickly, what's in Jonah's heart comes out. He wishes he was dead. And the author of the book of Jonah wants us to understand the irony of this story. In chapter 3, the king of Nineveh tells people to fast. And if you look in chapter 3, not only does he tell the people that they should fast, but he also tells the people something weird, that they should make all of their animals fast along with them. And they should put on burlap and ashes, which is a sign in the ancient world that you're really sorry for what you've done. But not only on them, they should put it on their cattle as well. Which is a bit stupid, I think, because after all, cows can't repent, can they? But what God is doing here is offering Jonah an alternative perspective on the course of events. God is appealing to Jonah's pity for the living things that he's encountered in this story, for the cattle, for the vine. And God is saying to Jonah effectively, Jonah, you can feel a little bit of compassion about that plant because Jonah says he can. He's upset about it, that it died. And God says to Jonah, Jonah, if you can feel compassionate, about the destruction of a plant that you didn't create? Shouldn't I be concerned about the destruction of people and animals that I did create? Should I not, God says, pity Nineveh? Should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not have compassion on the people of Nineveh? And to add to the irony of it all, that's where the book ends. We don't know whether Jonah got the point or not. We don't know whether he responded in any way to God's conversation. This kind of ending, however, is designed to push us as a reader to wrestle with and answer the exact same questions that God was asking Jonah. Because, friends, the wideness of God's mercy doesn't end with the people of Nineveh. God's asking the same question of you and I today. Should I not be concerned about the people of the city and township of Langley with 2008 census numbers and population of 129,741 people, many of whom are living in spiritual darkness? Should I not be concerned? But the problem is, friends, the same one that Jonah has. So often, we are thankful for our own rescue, but we're apathetic at best and angry at worst over the rescue of other people who in our minds don't deserve God's mercy. I don't know who's on your list in that category. Maybe somebody who has wronged you in a significant way, personally or relationally or in business. Maybe people from a different socioeconomic perspective. I find it so easy to get smug and self-satisfied that God has been merciful to me and then turn right around and hoard that mercy and grace and dispense it 
only judiciously to other people who share my values and my suburban cultural ethics and my socioeconomic status and my nationality and whatever else you might put in those categories. But the wideness of God's mercy has a few profound and challenging implications for us to wrestle with this morning. And the first one is a biggie. And we don't have time to unpack it in its entirety. But it involves a philosophical reality. And that reality is that evil remains alive and well in the world. And that the world will be a place where the possibility for great evil remains precisely because of the fact that God longs for the salvation of the wicked. And so the wicked will have lots of free reign to run around and do all kinds of crazy and hurtful and vindictive and evil things in our world. And Jonah's worldview didn't allow for this. In some ways, Jonah seems like a a foolish and pathetic child to us. But in in fairness to him, his entire worldview is coming undone. What he expected and what he has seen through history is that God always punishes the wicked and protects, protects the just. And his worldview is coming unglued at the seams. All of his fundamental convictions are being pushed and challenged and uprooted. But friends, in order for God to show his mercy, there have to be people who need it. God doesn't say that justice should not or eventually will not be done. He simply says that he would rather forgive and take the risk of letting evil persist in the world. And this can be a challenge for us to wrestle with. But I think it also helpfully pushes us to pray for and attend with loving action to the realities that we see on the news every night and read about in the papers. Yes, evil exists, but it cannot and will not ultimately win the day because of the wideness of God's mercy. The second implication for us to wrestle with is perhaps just as challenging, and that is the fact that much as we might want it to, repentance doesn't always stick. That's why Jonah climbs his little self-righteous hill, after all. He's hoping deeply and secretly that the Ninevites will go back to their old ways, and then boom, God will zap them, and then Jonah will feel vindicated. But the book of Jonah doesn't go into this, but we do actually know from history that by the time that the book of Jonah became a part of Jewish oral tradition and the Old Testament canon in the mid-5th century BCE, the Assyrian Empire was alive and well again and up to its dirty tricks. And so those who read, the original readers who read the book of Jonah knew that repentance didn't take hold in this city and in this culture. And so the question for the readers of Jonah and the question for us both them and us now is, then how does that make us feel and treat those who repent? Do we sit on our my hill, cross my arms, and wait for them to get tripped up by the same old habits and hang-ups, and then say, I told you so, 
I knew that person never really asked Jesus into their heart. Or am I able to let the wideness of God's mercy be what it is? I think the real question that Jonah asks us as a faith community is, do we understand the risks in reaching the rebellious here in our city? And are we willing to take them despite the very real possibility that we may see transformation come in the lives of people that we interact with? We may see our enemies become friends of God or we may not ever see that in our lifetimes or ever. This risk of repentance being not long-term exists. It exists everywhere. It exists in our own families. Will your kids stay with God's mercy and compassion or walk away from it for a season or forever? I don't know. It exists in our mission. We say we want to be as a community. We aspire to be a, a community of loving and listening people because as we extend God's hope and reconciliation to our community, It may be received with open arms. It may be rejected outright. We don't know. Not everyone who hears the message accepts it with glad and open hearts. Some do. The parable of the sower is a good reminder for us. Some receive it gladly and then fall away with time. And so the question for us begins, will we hold back in any way or are we willing to risk and let God be responsible for the results? and embrace those who repent with open arms of mercy and grace, even though it might not stick and it might be difficult. And I think here the narrowness of our worldview and our historical practice as evangelicals can perhaps lead us to miss the most obvious and glorious of the implications of God's mercy. And that is that God's invitation is for all to know his love. At Christmas, we celebrate the coming of Christ to earth who was sent to redeem the world. And the poignant reminder for us and the book of Jonah is that everyone, both insiders and outsiders, fundamentally are in the same basic relationship to God. We need mercy. All of us need God's mercy. Jonah does. The Ninevites do, you do, I do, those in our city who are in spiritual darkness do, those who are trying to reach by sending those to far corners of the world that are represented in the gift guide. Every one of us, humanity, is in the same basic boat. All of us need to accept God's forgiveness and compassion to realize afresh that we need the humility to allow his grace to nudge us toward him yet again this morning. I'm going to ask the worship and song team and the prayer team to come and we're going to respond to God and to one another in worship and through corporate prayer. And the songs that we're going to sing speak to the depth and the amazing nature of God's mercy. The prayer team's going to be available at the front here just by the windows and the lights. And I want to remind you that when people come for prayer, it's not because they have something deep and dark and sinister going on in their life. It's because they're just in a public way saying, you know what, I need God's mercy in my life in this situation. I want the wideness of God's mercy to come 
into my life and into this situation, this aspect of my life. Some of you might be coming for the first time and God has warmed your heart and he stirred in you a desire to cry out for his mercy. Some of you are in very difficult situations and you need to cry out to God for his mercy and not try to just do it yourself. And we have people here who are known and trusted leaders in the life of the community and they care deeply about you and they want to respond and stand with you and pray with you and listen to what God has to say as your situation. Don't make God's love too narrow for you by saying, well, I don't need that. I'm not going to respond. Don't make God's love too narrow by false limits of our own. Don't magnify his strictness with a zeal God himself will not own because there's plentiful redemption in the blood that has been shed and there's joy for everyone in the sorrows of Christ the head. For the love of God is broader than the measure of our mind and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. Would you stand with me and I'll pray for us as we respond. Jesus, I'm grateful for the wideness of your mercy, the depth of your compassion for each and every heart in this room, each and every life, each and every person here in our city, in our neighborhoods, every person that we work with and go to school with, every person that we have contact with through the different agencies in that gift guide. Every person in this earth, Father, your wideness of your mercy extends to them. It's not universalism that everyone will get to heaven. It's that every single person has an opportunity to experience your compassion and your mercy. And so, Father, I pray for each person in this room. I pray for each person who is listening and who will hear your call and your spirit warming their hearts and stirring within them a desire to reach out and grasp and know your mercy and your forgiveness. Father, I pray that you would give each of us the courage to respond and to respond in faith, saying, I don't know how you're going to handle this situation in my life, God, but I know I am done with handling it. And I need to receive your touch. I need to receive your mercy, your forgiveness in this aspect of my life, your mercy to pour through me so that I can pour it out into the lives of those I'm going to come in contact with this season. And it's going to be hard. And there's going to be people who I have to hang around with that I don't know. I can't just muster up the strength on my own. And so, Jesus, I pray that your mercy would touch my heart for them, for every conversation, for every interaction. Father, I pray for each person who is in this place today and who has never opened their heart to receive an outpouring of your mercy. I pray that today would be the day and that they would respond in faith just as every person needs to choose to do in their life in order to come into that relationship, to know you as the one who
who is the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our lives. We come on our knees in repentance and acknowledge that you are God and that you can forgive everything that we have done, every hurt, every wrong that we have held. And so, Father, we pray that in this place today you would pour out your mercy and compassion and your grace. We receive it, Father, with open hands, just physically. If you want to receive God's grace this morning to you, just as we sing these songs, I want you to demonstrate that just by putting out and opening your hands to God that you would receive from him his mercy and his grace.